Hello all, it's Tim. Today's episode is on the Battle for Slim River, a skirmish that occurred as part of the Japanese invasion of Malaysia lasting from 1941 to 1942. Join me as I explore how a mere 30 Japanese tanks managed to rout upwards of 5,000 British and colonial troops. Let's get right into it. Part 1. Context This episode's curtains of circumstance open to a Southeast Asia in peril. By late 1941, the Imperial Japanese Army had fully mobilized for what it believed was its divine-willed liberation of the continent. The Japanese won ground and sea on all its Southeast Asian fronts. Against the Dutch in the East Indies, against the Americans in the Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island, and against the British in Hong Kong and Malaysia. This episode shall focus on the Malayan campaign, given it was one of the fastest campaigns of the Japanese during that time. Several historians today, like hobbyists Bernard Edwards and Niki Wantakan Arcado, called the Malayan campaign the Japanese interpretation and execution of Blitzkrieg, the innovative Nazi-German doctrine of overwhelming firepower and combined arms doctrine that was previously discussed in episode 1. Acclaimed historian and recipient of the Order of the British Empire, William McLinter, suggests that at Singapore and Malaya, British High Command was confident that a strong naval presence and the region's jungle warfare would definitely deter possible aggressors like Japan. Historians Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey note that this overconfidence, as far-stretching as it may sound to us now, was actually considered the absolute truth among British command in the Far East back in the 1930s. Consequently, British command financially and strategically neglected the defense of its Far East territories. McClinter reiterates in his writings that even British military staff assigned to those places themselves were riddled with indecisiveness, ignorance, and inexperience. Unlike the British, McLinter notes that the Japanese had a unified and stringent command that left no ambiguity in its orders. Moreover, Japanese troops deployed at Malaya had the additional benefit of being extensively battle-hardened. Historian Charles Maecheling notes that the invading Japanese 25th Army was ferociously disciplined and drew from years of combat experience in battling Chinese troops. Maechling also notes that this experience is well complemented by the fact that the Japanese force was well-equipped. According to historian Brian Bond's findings, the Japanese had at least 459 of their cutting-edge, land-based, or carrier-based aircraft available. Bond amounts that the British and colonial forces just had some 250 aircraft, many of them obsolete or in a sorry state of disrepair. At Malaya, 
Japanese pilots fought for and eventually enjoyed domination in the skies, with the freedom to strafe and bomb enemy ground units at will. As for ground forces, Harper and Bailey write that the Japanese invasion force had proper light and medium tanks. Most prominent were the Type 5 Hago and Type 97 Chiha. Historian Gercharn Sandu mentions that the British lacked machinery to match and could only field their undergunned universal carriers and the Mark VI Vickers light tanks, a severe disadvantage when it comes to armored warfare. Historian Frank Owen underscores that with superior combat experience and equipment, it should come as no surprise that the Japanese, upon landing at the Malaysian province of Kota Baru and Thai provinces of Patani and Songkla, easily overpowered the numerically superior Indian units defending the coastline in less than three days. By December 11, 1941, the Japanese 25th Army employed well-organized armored columns in spearhead formations against the British and colonial troops, to an absolutely devastating effect. Such was the doctrine of the overall commander of Japanese troops in Malaya, Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita. Yamashita happened to perfect this technique in Manchuria from 1938 to 1940. Yamashita's troops demonstrated their resourcefulness and mobile tactics in their commandeering of local Malay's bicycles to compensate for a lack of Japanese trucks. Historian L. Clemen remarks that bicycles allowed the infantry to keep up pace with the tanks through thick tropical rainforest, albeit using crisscrossing paths. By the end of December 1941, a mere month from their landings, the Japanese 25th Army enveloped the Malayan Peninsula in two large pincers. Clement illustrates that the Japanese 5th Division lined the west coast, while the 18th Division bore down on the eastern coast. McClinter lists that the key Malaysian towns and passes of Jitra, Gurun, Penang Island, Kampar, Kuantan, and Maran fell under the control of the Japanese. With this need for speed, the Japanese unhinged even the staunchest of defenses the British and colonial troops could mount. The Japanese would often outflank positions through the jungles faster than the British defenders could effectively pin the mobile forces down. Though superior in number, the British, and in particular, the Indian 11th Division fell back time and again to avert their total destruction. The Indian 11th Division alone withdrew almost 180 miles in three weeks with little rest. Clement articulates that the Allies' strength in numbers was not leveraged enough, perhaps due to their impaired fighting capabilities as they retreated. Wishing to redeem the misfortune so far, newly appointed acting British Major General Archibald Paris positioned his 11th Indian Division in the southernmost Malaysian state of Johor, near Trollak village, a location better known as Slim River. Historian Colin Smith recognized that Slim River had excellent characteristics fitting of defensive warfare. 
interlocking jungly hills lined both sides of the singular pavement that existed to cross the river. This choke point would be any convoy's nightmare, especially the Japanese one filled with trucks and tanks. Paris and his superior, British Field Marshal Archibald Wavell, championed Slim River as a guard post for the Malayan capital of Kuala Lumpur, an important junction to resupply British and colonial troops with consumables, weapons, and reinforcements. Wavell deployed the 12th and 28th Brigades along the Slim River Road, armed with anti-tank guns, mines, concrete blocks, and sandbags. Historian Alan Warren observes that British fortifications at Slim River were formidable, but does not discount the fact that these troops manning these makeshift bunkers were hastily assembled and low on morale. After all, they were but the remnants of the British units that were heavily mauled at the previous battles of Kampar and Grick Road. Historian Kashuk Roy agrees with this viewpoint. Meanwhile, Roy observes that Yamashita was keen to secure Kuala Lumpur as quickly as possible to secure all its railroads and eliminate any chances of a sweeping British counterattack. To perpetuate the dislocation of the enemy, Yamashita ordered his 5th Division bicycle troops and tanks at full speed, without flank or rearguard protection. Smith writes that the task of maintaining the momentum of the Japanese advance fell on Colonel Tadao Ando from the 42nd Regiment. His objective was clear, to completely shatter the cohesion of British and colonial forces in bypassing Slim River Road or die trying. Part 2. Order of Battle On January 5th, 1942, the vanguard of the Japanese 5th Division finally reached Slim River Road. They engaged the opposing Indian 19th Hyderabad Regiment, part of the forward elements under the larger British 12th Brigade. Yet, Warren narrates that Colonel Ando's Japanese 42nd Regiment met heavy resistance and were repulsed until the arrival of one Major Toyosaku Shimada. Shimada, whom Arcado and other historians like Bill Yen praised as an exceptionally bold thinker of tank warfare at his time, came up with a plan that was unusual in the context of the Second World War. He proposed a fast-moving night attack using tanks to lead the infantry. A dangerous proposition for Shimada's tank crews, considering the extremely low visibility during the night. Nevertheless, Japanese high command was indeed desperate to keep the advance moving, and so hastily green-lighted the plan. Led by 30 or so of Shimada's Hago and Chiha tanks, Colonel Ando's 42nd Regiment charged, outflanked, and uprooted the Indian 9th Hyderabad Regiment by 4 a.m. on January 7, 1942. Smith details that the Japanese force continued down on the road until they met the 2nd Punjab Regiment. Smith also describes that the Japanese lost four tanks to Punjabi resistance in the form of British mines, boys' anti-tank rifle fire, and homemade gasoline bombs. 
The road was temporarily clogged with burning tanks, but was decongested when Shimada discovered an unguarded jungle road that once again enabled his column to go around his destroyed vehicles. The Japanese infantry arrived and cleared the Punjabi positions with ease, moving along with the tanks. At 6.30 a.m., Shimada's tanks were approaching the next enemy, the second Argyll and Sutherland's Highlanders. Roy writes that, like the previous engagements, the second Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders were ill-informed and caught off guard when they suddenly spotted the Japanese driving into them with full force. Similar to the previous engagements, Japanese tanks swiftly drove a fatal wedge between the British line, and the Japanese infantry entered to quickly clean up the survivors. Fighting was indeed fierce, but in less than an hour, the second Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders were wiped out. With this, Warren highlights in his book that no British or colonial unit was able to communicate their defeats to the demolition teams at Trollak village. The Swampland Bridge there had then remained unscathed. Looking to speed ahead, Shimada's tanks exploited the chaos and traversed Trollak village without waiting for proper infantry support from Colonel Ando's 42nd Regiment. The road now turned direction from south to east, where it would be parallel to the Slim River. Once again, Shimada's tanks raced ahead and caught another unsuspecting Punjabi battalion on the march. Historian journalist Jonathan Moffat delineates that these Punjabis had no time to set up their unwieldy anti-tank field guns, so Shimada's tanks simply smashed through their thin ranks and scattered them into the jungle by 7.30 a.m. With this, the British 12th Brigade had practically ceased to be a defensive threat to the Japanese. Without respite, the Japanese tanks pressed their attack and drove eastward into the woefully unaware British 28th Brigade, whom Roy classifies as anxious due to a lack of communication and command coherency. As they faced the British 28th Brigade, historian hobbyist Ron Taylor chronicles that a certain Lieutenant Sadanobu Watanabe commanded Shimada's three leading tanks. Again, armed with surprise and superior firepower, Watanabe's three tanks steamrolled the defenses of the 2nd and 9th British Gurkha battalions in a matter of mere minutes. Watanabe's tanks rampage on the road unchecked, shooting up the last sizable enemy force, the 1st British Gurkha battalion. Eager to prevent the retreat of their enemies across two southern bridges, Watanabe detached from Shimada's main column and headed straight for the farther bridge. Yen remarks that Watanabe's tanks destroyed vital medical, artillery, and communication equipment near that specific bridge, even killing two senior British artillery colonels in the process. When Watanabe arrived at the farther bridge, it was still 8.30 a.m. on January 7, 1942. There, Colin narrates that Watanabe's own tank knocked out a battery of Bofors 40mm anti-aircraft guns manned by the British, Singapore, and Hong Kong Artillery Regiment. Then, according to Taylor's article and Colin's book, Watanabe himself leapt out of his tank, 
and dramatically cut the wires to the demolition charges on the bridge with his katana. With the road bridge under Japanese control, Gurkha and Punjabi survivors were forced to swim across Slim River. Yen narrates that Watanabe was only stopped when two howitzers from the British 155th Field Artillery Regiment finally opened fire at point-blank range and deterred any more Japanese advances. Truly, the Japanese drive had ceased and the battle for Slim River had ended. Part 3. Aftermath Militarily Warren highlights that the Battle of Slim River was a great feat for Major Toyosaku Shimada's tank battalion. When Colonel Ando finally caught up, the real extent of the damage Shimada had done was revealed. Shimada's tanks, with Lieutenant Sadanobu Watanabe at the helm, managed to drive the bigger British Indian 11th Division back 19 miles and take three bridges, all before lunchtime. So, what makes this mission improbable? Well, Shimada's 30 tanks had killed around 500 enemy troops and led to the Japanese capturing no less than 3,200 British and colonial troops. Warren comments in his book that Japanese losses were laughably small, just 17 killed and 60 wounded. Watanabe demonstrated the pinnacle art of tank warfare, a breakthrough weapon that can capture several key positions while causing confusion amongst the enemy. Colin further adds that Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Harrison, having narrowly escaped from death from Watanabe's tank, admired the Japanese ferocity as he said, and I quote, Heedless of the danger and of their isolation, they have shattered the division. They had captured the slim bridge by their reckless and gallant determination. Another lieutenant colonel spoke of the battle to an unnamed historian after the war, stating, and I quote, I am rightly criticized for not using field artillery in an anti-tank role, but I had never taken part in an exercise embodying a coordinated anti-tank defense. The use of tanks on a road at night was a surprise. It is undeniable that a lack of communication undermined British and colonial forces at Slim River. They could not direct effective artillery fire to destroy the armored spearhead that was the Japanese tanks. If British artillery had been called in, Shimada's column, temporarily stopped by the 2nd Punjab Regiment, would have been absolutely shredded. But that wasn't the case. According to historian Ian Ward, General Wavell, appalled at the severely weakened state of the survivors of Slim River, immediately ordered the 11th Indian Division out of the front line. After Slim River, the 11th Indian Division was no longer an offensively capable division in the British and Colonial Army at Malaya. Part 4, My Takeaway my takeaway from Slim River is that we must take calculated risks and communicate these. It's a two-pronged mindset, so I'll explain it in two parts. The first part is calculated risk-taking. There will always be uncertainty, so don't bother to clear all of it up. Simultaneously, you also have to work to keep the factors within your reach reliable 
and certain. Your ability is only as good as the equipment you use to amplify its effect. While the Japanese did attack during the night, they knew of their constants, their superior formation, discipline, and firepower through the use of tanks. Being risk-averse may blind you to lucrative Slim River-like opportunities and may incur regret in hindsight. The second part is communication. Communication makes certain of the risk involved and reduces unpredictability, even if only slightly. Communicating with others may afford you a viewpoint beyond your own limiting perspective. In fact, coordinating your efforts with others may get tasks done faster, much like how Major Shimada's tanks and Colonel Ando's infantry initially synchronized in breaking through and mopping up British positions, respectively. Historians Alan Jeffries and Duncan Anderson write that the victory at Slim River allowed the Japanese to occupy Kuala Lumpur unopposed. As for the British and colonial troops, they fell back to a line of resistance between Mersin and Muar. But this too didn't hold out for long, and a little over a month from Slim River, Singapore would capitulate and all Allied armies in Malaya would surrender. For defeating British forces at Singapore and Malaya in just 70 days, Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita was handsomely decorated with medals and would be immortalized by the Allies as the fearsome Tiger of Malaya. Historian author Aubrey St. Kenworthy argues that this is as high as Yamashita's respected career would fly. In all, Slim River decided the fate of mainland Malaya and arguably Singapore. These two territories came conclusively under the iron grip of the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy, a step closer to the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere sought after by Japanese ministers Yosuke Matsuoka and Hideki Tojo.